This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. You know, an author is worth reading if he can make stones. Interesting. But after reading Andrew Wilson's God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in Everyday World, published by Zondervan, you'll be seeing stones everywhere in the Bible, and you'll understand their significance in ways you never imagined before. Wilson writes, The most famous stone in history, more foundational than the temple walls, more marveled at than Stonehenge, is the stone that wasn't there. That's good. And don't even get him started on mountains. There are whole books that could be expanded from his chapter about the mountains of Scripture. Andrew Wilson is teaching pastor at King's Church London and has theology degrees from Cambridge London School of Theology and King's College London. He is a columnist for Christianity Today and has written several books, including Echoes of Exodus and Spirit and Sacrament. His newest book, God of All Things, teaches about God through the ordinary physical things we see every day. If you don't normally enjoy reading theology, I'd love to recommend this book because you'll learn a lot about God, you'll develop a strong biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll see your ordinary world with new eyes in the process. Andrew joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss viruses, pigs, sex, children, trees, and more. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I don't know how you live up to that kind of an introduction, but thank you very much. I can't wait to hear myself speak. (laughs) Andrew, how did you learn to read the Bible this way? I mean, is this a method that other people can learn, or is this a particular gift God has given you? I learned it in the last few years, I think, through initially probably introduced to it through my friend Alistair Roberts, and then through the work of Peter Lightheart. And I think that the two of them, and they would, I'm sure, credit James Jordan and others, but the two of them opened a door for me, which particularly when I was working on a previous book with Alistair together, I just thought, man, this there's just so many and obviously i think well i think we're always aware aren't we that there's that, that certain symbols have meanings in the bible and you so some of these things you would expect that somebody would be able to see wine is meaningful or bread is you know those sorts of things but i think the the extent of the connections that the, the bible's bible makes between different passages and ideas and the way in which themes and objects recur throughout the story is something i probably encountered more in the last five years i don't think i'd really used it this way before then and so i'd written a book on the character of god before but done it from the attributes and almost in a more abstract way like god is god is good god is glorious god all those things whereas i think in this book it's sort of almost trying to cover the same ground but start from the bottom up rather than the top down and say god's made a world and the world reflects who god is and he's deliberately put things in it as a means of revealing who he is and i just i think that's probably a relatively new discovery for me i tend to write about what i'm excited about so it's something that i'm still excited about because i feel like i've only relatively recently seen how intricate and 
how deep down the rabbit hole you can go. So I think it's a lot of fun. Andrew, you even devote a chapter to viruses. How do you expect to show us the handiwork of God in viruses? Well, viruses, the chapter on viruses, I call the problem of God. So all the chapters are like the something of God, you know, the goodness of God or the love of God or whatever. But the one on viruses I call the problem of God. And in a way, it's to me, the virus is pretty much the best uh, expression of the problem of evil that we have. So instead of saying, hey, aren't viruses great? Look at the intricacy of what God's designed. I actually, that's the one chapter of the, of the book in which I do the opposite, which is to say, hey, look at this thing that God has made. And even right now, these little beasts are, you know, I wrote this chapter, in the first draft of this chapter before COVID hit. And now, of <laughs> course, it's a far bigger, more pressing issue for everybody. But in some ways, that's only reminded us of something that most of our ancestors knew very well, which is there are these horrible sicknesses which get us. And if anything, the more we've learned about viruses, the more of a problem in terms of theodicy and understanding God it is, because we can't write them off just as a as an impersonal disease, we actually have to see these things are being created. These things are sustained. They are part of the created order. What on earth do we do with that? And I think in so, that, so what that's a, effectively that chapter is an exploration of all the reasons why people typically try and explain away the problem of evil and say, oh, it's all right. It's not an issue for Christian theology because of this and say none of those work actually in the end. Uh, we have to come face to face with the answer. I don't know why God has made these things. I have to concede my ignorance here otherwise i'm not gonna be able to make any sense of this at all and i just have to stand back and say yeah all of the normal pat answers i'd give to suffering don't work for viruses they work for other things but they don't well, sometimes but they don't work for viruses and therefore i'm forced to confront my own limitations in order to be able to answer that question and so that in some ways is the i thought i had to put it in otherwise it, otherwise you end up running a little bit like monty python you know where they do that spoof of all things bright and beautiful and it's all things vile and cancerous and they're like there's there's some things in this creation i don't understand and viruses are a pretty timely example now pigs pigs <laughs> i can understand because they give us bacon but pork of course was forbidden for the jews how does your book help us understand the relationship between the old and new testaments in some ways all of the because the whole of the interconnectedness of the whole Bible, I think almost all the time, every time you find a thing introduced in the Old Testament, you will, if you don't understand what it's there for by the end of the New Testament, you probably will. So, you know, you've already mentioned examples like mountains or whatever, where you say there's a lot of mountain symbolism in the Old Testament, and then you get into the New and you think, oh, now but the story comes to its climax on mountains as well. And you'd say the same of rivers and bread and wine and many things. I, I mentioned pigs, I think, because pigs are a particularly good example and livestock. I, talk, I did two chapters on animals near the beginning, one from Leviticus and one from Numbers why there's so many farm animals like my son has a farm animal set out on the kitchen floor at the moment and you walk in and think yeah most of those things are in the bible and almost all the other things in this house are not in the bible why is that and i think in some ways those those animals are introduced to us obviously partly for sacrificial purposes but partly also to illustrate who we are and i think one of the points i make is that whereas when you look at a cow or a sheep you say that's obviously a stand-in for christ he's going to be the you know the great the the bull who becomes a worship offering or the scapegoat or the lamb who takes away the sin of the world I, that's quite easy to see and the letter to the hebrews particularly draws those connections for us but when you come to pigs you think i ah, know the pig is there's no pig isn't a type of christ the pig's a type of me the pig is the type of the sort of filthy 
Gentile who's not welcome in the camp and in fact needs to be removed because he's impure and unclean because he parts the hoof and eats his own feces and does all kinds of other diabolical things which and in a way that then becomes a type of me and then when I turn to the New Testament and I find the demonized man among the pigs who may well have been a Gentile certainly lived on that side of the lake and he gets restored to his right mind and the pigs all charged off the hill and get you know, off the cliff and, and and die. Or when I see Peter's dream and he's, Peter, wake up, Peter, you can eat anything you want, including these vile animals and therefore don't call anyone unclean. I think, oh, I'm the pig. But instead of the instead of a pig who is no longer welcome, I've been welcomed in because of death. And actually my death in Christ has turned me into something aromatic and beautiful, just as a pig who stinks uh, is turned into something aromatic and beautiful like bacon when he's sacrificed for our breakfast. And I, I just think even there, there's a powerful symbol of, I think sometimes we struggle to see our own unpleasantness within biblical symbolism. And I think a pig is a pretty good way of making that point. And Leviticus does it with bells on. Uh, Andrew, as I read your book, I, I can't imagine why anyone would want the pathetic little gods that we invent instead of this wild, amazing God revealed to us in the Bible. But then you, know, you write this, quote, a made-up God will leave your world undisturbed, conveniently aligning with your priorities without displacing anything, because ultimately you are more glorious than it is. The real God, however, will land in the middle of your life like an elephant crashing through the ceiling, displacing your sin, changing all your priorities, and forcing you to reorient yourself around the weight of glory. End quote. Love that quote. How do we help people to desire the real thing, the real God, instead of all these counterfeits we manufacture? In some ways, that's the whole question of Christian evangelism in a, in a sentence, isn't it? In but, two minutes, Andrew. Yeah. You had two minutes. <laughs> I think I think there's a positive and a negative. There's a there's a constructive and a destructive component to the answer to that question i think the destructive part is where you take hold of you you expose this and the bible does a lot of this actually you see it in particularly in books like deuteronomy and Isaiah, where you have a very strong polemic against the kind of gods you could worship if you didn't worship the lord and you have these gods exposed for what they are and debunked and say these guys ultimately don't deliver and sometimes that's done through mockery and satire like here i'm bound down to a block of wood sometimes it's through exposing their pretensions and their impotence in light of the real god like elijah at mount carmel your god can't actually do anything uh sometimes it, yeah there's many ways of doing it i, I one i think in our culture where in some ways when i transcendentalize this thing that isn't god what if effectively the person who becomes god is me because i'm the one who's in control i i get to tell this god what i want from it and then i get to do everything that god tells me to do um which is where gods of money wealth sex power those sorts of gods become effectively things that i transcendentalize lift up and then look to for meaning and i think the way of critiquing those is ultimately the same as what isaiah and moses do which is to expose their inability to live at what they promised um and i think that's a that's the critical function of apologetics i think or of christian evangelism i think the constructive function is to say that there is something within you that longs for something beyond even the greatest gods that this world has offered and that's a good thing that you're longing for you're just looking for it in the wrong place which is more like the the jeremiah 2 you know my people have forsaken me the fountain of living water and so they've hewn out broken cisterns it, you will look for water in the wrong place if you don't find it in the right place it, samaritan woman and so on you know I, I want this yeah give me this living this water and i think that's i'm writing a message was writing a message on it just this morning and and that's exactly the kind of the the invitation to say you know come to the waters you are thirsty come and eat 
you know, food without cost and feast yourself on who God is, because there are things that you cr are crying out for in your heart that you won't find satisfied anywhere else. You, you ultimately long for the infinite love of a human person. And you don't find that anywhere else. You ultimately long for a meaning that suffering can't take away. You ultimately long for immortality and victory over death. You, there are also, you, you long for unconditional acceptance, truly unconditional acceptance, which even the best lover or child can't or parent can't give you. And those things are good longings and they've been placed within you and you won't find them satisfied anywhere outside of your creator. So I think there's a positive and a critical component of apologetics and evangelism there. Well done, Andrew. You ran over your two minutes there, just <laughs> an FYI, but I do appreciate it. I need your... a stop clock or something. <laughs> no, no, just joking. So sex is considered a weakness in Christianity for relating to people today. Now it's actually not new. It's been going this way for many, 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 many decades, especially in the West. But you certainly don't seem to share that view of sex being this kind of uh, vulnerability for Christianity. You write this, quote, Although we live in a society that prides itself on having a positive view of sex, our cultural representations of it are far more likely to generate cheap simulation or childish snickers than the unashamed, bold, beautiful celebration of sexual intimacy that you find in the song. That is the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Andrew, is there a chance we could flip this dominant narrative of sex in a way that would illumine God's original intent? I think we have to. I, I, whether or not people will immediately find it arresting or compelling is is going to depend on some other factors. Um, but I think we, I think we do have to. I think the Bible does. I think it's our responsibility and calling to tell the story of biblical sexuality in the way that that shows sex as a signpost ultimately, which is I think how you know. And many of us are I think trying to do that. It's probably something you do. It's certainly something I have to do. And pastor preaching, you you're trying to say that. This thing in itself is is not the end of the story. This is a, a, a representation. It's a picture, a parable, a shadow, a silhouette of something much greater than it. And it's actually of several things. It's a picture of worship. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what faithful the faithful relationship between God and us looks like. It's a picture of creation and the cosmos. And I think if we don't do that, then our constraints on sexuality, which Christians have always held and said always, these are the rules, really. Um, we don't like putting it that way, but in the end, that is what we have. If you don't set it in the context of that story, then the rules just look very arbitrary. It's like saying, you know, God likes green jelly babies and not yellow ones, as one writer I read put it. And if you don't do that, and if you don't say, no, 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 it's not like that at all. This is this is not in any way arbitrary. This is saying, if you enact this story incorrectly, then you're not playing the role of Christ and she's not playing the role of the church and there's no exclusivity and fidelity and permanence and otherness and all of these themes then you are putting on display an inaccurate representation of worship or creation or the gospel of what Christ has done. And I think if we, and, and therefore, I think the answer to the question has to be yes, we have to do it. I think some of us will find it easier than others, and some of us will find that we want to kind of avoid talking about sex. But my general experience with any apologetic issue is that making the, it's better to talk problems up than to talk problems down, which is why I have a chapter on sex and a chapter on suffering and a chapter other big problematic issues. Because you know, I think we're often wanting to say to people, I think you've actually understated the, the scale of the problem Christians have with this teaching. If you're challenging me that Christianity is narrow when it comes to sex, I'm going to say, oh, you don't know the half of it. It's, it's far worse than you think. Actually, this is a limitation of the entire life being yielded to Christ. And I don't have any choice. Of it. I'm not my own. That's my claim. It's not just my 
sex life isn't my own. And so we almost escalating the problem and then showing why it's there rather than hoping it will get smaller uh, in the face of cultural objections, which I don't see happening anytime soon. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's I, I think there's an opportunity there because it's so weird to the modern world that I think it gives us an opportunity to give an answer when asked why it's like that. That is one of my favorite apologetic moves as well, Andrew, is to take the objection and make it way worse, <laughs> to escalate it. I don't know where I learned that. I got it from Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, right? <laughs> okay. So Mission Impossible 1, I think it's number one, where there's a scene where Ving Rhames is saying to him, are you telling me you're going to get in there, pass the cameras, pass the guns, all the rest of the, you know, and then we're going to do this and then got to get out. And Tom Cruise goes, relax, Luther. It's far worse than you think. And he goes, dum, 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 dum. and I've just thought that is the, it's such a wonderful movie moment. And that is basically what I think apologists are trying to do is relax. It's far worse than you think. I think it's great fun. You went that direction. I was going to go Dostoevsky, but Tom Cruise is... <laughs> Oh, you're so much more literary than me. <laughs> Tom Cruise is probably much more relatable. I don't know. This is what we're talking about here. I don't know how anyone can make sense of sex without God's intent. All kinds of confusion about why we would even be this way with the purpose. Anyway, you write this, quote, an obvious answer to the question, what is sex? And one we should not overlook is that the primary purpose of sex is to have children and everything that makes it delightful, physical, emotional, hormonal, spiritual, is designed to strengthen the bond between husband and wife and enable us to face the challenges of pregnancy, birth, and parenthood together, end quote. Now, Andrew, I think that is beautiful and true, but I'm not even sure most Protestants would share <laughs> this view. How do you get away with suggesting such an outdated notion as sex being designed by God primarily to produce children? Well, I, I haven't got away with it, Colin, because it hasn't come out yet. I have no, <laughs> I have no idea whether, whether I will or be excommunicated. So I think I certainly don't think that's the only one. And I put it in the context of, I think, saying that sex means, I can't remember, actually three, four different things, which yeah, is intended right. to symbolize. But I just think in some ways there's there's ancient wisdom here again, isn't there? There's just this, the occasionally, you know, who's that person who made that comment about there's a this certain type of a great writer who says something like there's certain types of error that you have to be incredibly intelligent to swallow like there's certain kinds of things that almost no matter how you the brighter you are the more likely you are not to see it sounds and, like tom cruise maybe <laughs> <laughs> um and, but it is like that i think with this where where you ask anybody who's been alive in human history to say what is sex for until about 50 years ago max and people would say well one of the first two or three things they're going to say is to have children in fact for many of those centuries they probably wouldn't even come up with a second that, that would be the obvious and and it's just so once you you say it, you just go through scripture and say, if I wasn't trying to find a 21st century Protest, you know, Protestantism light compatible version of sexuality, what would I say the scriptures were pointing to? That's one of the first things you say from Genesis 1 onwards, isn't it? You know, be fruitful and multiply. And you'd say, you'd obviously want a new one say, it's not just that. It's not the way, I don't think contraception is a sin. And I don't think that sex must only be for the creation of children. I don't think that couples who are past the age of childbearing should stop having sex. I'm not saying any of those things. But nevertheless, it's very obvious, is it not, that this is basically what, in biological terms and in emotional terms, this wonderful gift has been designed to point towards, even if that's something that, because of reasons of age or infertility or whatever, I myself cannot realize in my own sexuality, that's nevertheless clearly what it's for. And I actually think 
it's very important in some ways in the context of a church where there's increasingly numbers of single people and people are getting married later. A lot of people in my church single who are wrestling with what place does sexuality have in singleness. If I take the childbearing bit out of it and I, and I don't act like that's part of the story, it really does seem like an arbitrary restriction. It seems incomprehensible to people that a single person's sexuality is to be channeled in a different way than a married person. So I feel like we've kind of got to, but whether I get away with it is going to, yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> I just think what you write is such an encouragement to so many couples with children, and it brings so much coherence to the purpose of God's design. But it seems like because we've been pushing back against, I'll just say, I think within Protestant churches, we've been pushing back against a Catholic notion that we've almost divined our theology and practice by simply being not Catholic. Yeah. As opposed to orienting ourselves toward what you said is fairly obvious from Scripture. So, again, it's not, it's certainly more than having children, but it's not less than that. And it does not have to be pleasurable. God did not have to design it that way. But perhaps one major reason he did is for the reason that you gave right here to reinforce those bonds that carry parents through child rearing, which is very difficult. So anyway, I loved that perspective. Now, I know, Andrew, many people can relate to what you write about anxiety. And what stood out to me was what you noticed about your own personal patterns of anxiety. I've quoted this already to many people since I read your book. You write this, quote, my level of anxiety tends to be higher when I spend a lot of time with screens or money and lower when I spend a lot of time with trees or children, end quote. Andrew, how would the Bible support this observation in your personal life? The chapter is drawn from the section in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, where Jesus says, don't worry, and, and he's talking about consider the lilies. And that's where, I, that's where I got started, I think. Look at flowers. And I, I think, of course, screens and even and money, as we understand it now, is, you know, wealth and possessions, clearly a big theme of the Bible, but uh, money as we now understand it, uh, and certainly screens or, or, or even anything that are close, even remotely approximates to it, interacting with an impersonal object that has the capacity to convey large amounts of information at once. That's a modern development which has, you know, is the Bible, I'm not saying, wouldn't claim for a moment that, that scripture speaks to, except to say that I think it, it captures and embodies things like what the Bible says about the city and about large clusters of human beings, which is there's a wonderful good there because there's a wonderful concentration of creativity and life, but there's also one, you know, a lot of evil there because a lot of sin gets piled on top of sin. And I think anxiety is something that happens when we stop looking at the givenness of things and stop looking at the fact that they are gifts created by God and begin to think of ourselves as the architects or the controllers or the creators. And of course, with a screen, that's even what we literally do that. We talk about people being content creators or whatever. And we we can we think about ourselves as consuming things which are entirely created by either us uh, for money or other people in the, in the form of what we consume in our, on our news feeds or social media or whatever. And I think both of those things are at risk of making human beings and, their, and our agendas the center of our consciousness, whereas a tree and a child are both very given, and that doesn't mean that they're always happy. I mean, you know, having three children, I, I don't feel like children are always making me go, yeah, nothing to worry about here. But strangely, I don't feel this, when I'm talking to a child, I don't feel the same sense of anxiety because I see there's an innocence and a givenness there that is able to shake me out of that. And uh, and I actually, say, actually say there's something more 
fundamental about the world represented in a tree or a child than there is represented in a screen or a bank transfer. And and I have to keep hearing that, and I have to keep encountering it in them again and again. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus came into the world at a time when he could continually say, look at that animal, look at this thing, look at it, here's like a sheep. I think there is something... I don't want, I'm, I'm not Wendell Berry. I'm not like we, we need to all strip away all signs of the industrial society or whatever to, to live happier, richer lives. Maybe. But I think there is nevertheless something very natural in the best sense, very created about things like that, which can lift my eyes from the things I would otherwise be concerned about. And in a world where I spend, I'm right now, I'm talking to you on a screen and I'm doing things, I'm doing at, at a workplace where I make money. So I've, I've got to work harder than average to interact with the the givenness of things, if I can call it that. And your last question on on your book before we turn to the final three, and you make much of the upside down nature of God's kingdom exemplified in the death of Jesus. And you write this, quote, the fulfillment of this vision comes at the cross. Rome, the most powerful military force the world has yet seen, gathers a battalion of soldiers to inspect Israel's king. They are armed, he is stripped. They come with swords and spears. He comes in nothing but the name of the Lord God. They are horns. He is a craftsman. They carry the most advanced weapons available. He is carrying the ordinary carpenter's tools he grew up with, nails, hammers, planks of wood, end quote. It still seems, Andrew, that many of us, especially in the United States, would prefer the Roman way. How do we wean ourselves off the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of the cross? I, I will say this. I had a really good, on, an, on another podcast with some friends of mine uh, on Mythodality, I, where uh, my friend Matt Anderson, who I think you know as well, was talking about the power of, I, I can't even remember if he used this phrase, but the, what I picked up from it was of losing happily or losing cheerfully, of basically being able to not feel like that. I've got to go down fighting, but actually being able to say, I'm going to have power taken away from me and be cheerful about it because I know that that's the way of the cross. And uh, I think that the, the real challenge is that particularly when, and I'm, you know, you and I are probably very similar in age, I expect similar in culture. And basically, if you were to form a pyramid of human history with who's got the most sort of, you know, cultural power and financial and economic well-being. So we're, we're not at the top, but we're fairly near it and relative. We're not Jeff Bezos or Barack Obama, but we're pretty near, you know, in, some, in a global scheme. And I think for us to even to read gospels that are written to and for people who are at the opposite end of that pyramid and find that the joy, the people who really hear the message of Jesus in every generation are often the ones who are at the, much closer to the bottom of that pyramid. And it's the ones nearer the top who worry about it and are concerned about what it might mean for their livelihoods. I think we have to get used to and have to learn how to move down that pyramid in whatever way. It might just be it might be something as little as social stigma. Um, or no longer getting the best jobs or promotions or being allowed to say quite what we really think. I'm not saying those things are for the common good, but I think they might be for my good in a way in that they might humble me and force me to see myself more as, you know, on which side of Mary's Magnificat are you? Are you the person who goes, he has thrown down the mighty from their seat and you wince? Or are you the person who says, praise God, he has exalted the humble and meek? And I think until we're the ones who are clearly resonating with the second half rather than the first half of that line, I think there's always going to be some of the power of Rome and, the, and that sort of way of doing warfare that we're going to be attracted to. And I think that's not just an American problem, by the way, that we definitely have that in the UK as well. And I think that's one of the things God is doing in this generation, I suspect, is humbling some of us. And there are all sorts of downsides to that and dangers of it as well for the, for the rest of society. But I think for many of us, it may actually be a very good thing. 
My guest has been Andrew Wilson, author of God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World from Zondervan. Andrew, final three. What is the last great book you read? Oh, my goodness. I read one. I finished Leo Tolstoy's of Man and Master this morning. And it's so it's only 50 pages, but it is just so, so good. It's just the most incredible story. And uh, yeah, so that I, that makes it sound like I'm reading Tolstoy all the time. I'm not, but I happened to be this morning and it was just epic. Well, you chose the shorter of Tolstoy. That was a yeah, exactly. wise decision. Oh, oh. What prompted you to pick up that book? Well, I, 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 in some ways I cheated. I'm reading a book called A Walk in the Pond in the Rain um, by George Saunders, who is a you know, sort of Man Booker Prize winner who has written a book about how to write and he's incorporated seven Russian short stories in it and then talked about how these guys do tell the stories. And one of those stories is Tolstoy's Man and Master or Master and Man. I, to be honest, it's so recent, I've even forgotten which way around it goes. But it was it's so great. And then he talks about how Tolstoy's craft works and encourages us to leap to learn from it. I like it. Uh, Andrew, what brings you calm in the storm? There's lots of theological answers, but I think a lot of the time I know that just going for a walk. So, I mean, in outside of lockdown, I'd say sitting in a coffee shop, reading a book with a pen and a pad with lockdown, we're still locked down in, in Eastbourne. So I, I, there's no, you know, I can't go and sit in a coffee shop, but even then I think going for a walk and that is actually related to the point I made about trees and children. I, I do think just being outside is a, a gift of the grace of God to me. Obviously there's all the spiritual arts of reading scripture. Those things are all true as well, but I do find just being outside is massive for me. And where do you find good news today? Again, lots of obvious theological answers. I'm quite a, a sort of, I scour the the web and news feeds for positive stories, and I've basically become quite self-selecting when it comes to the people I follow and engage with online. So actually, although you do get bad news on Twitter and you get kerfuffles on it, I Twitter's my main portal for that kind of thing. But I've made it quite, I've curated it quite carefully. So I mean, you qualify, Colin, for what it's worth. Hey, um, but but as in a lot of people online don't, and, I, and so I'm I'm really trying to hit. And even with news, I think I'm quite careful about where I read news. Um, and unfortunately, that means I'm always reading optimistic things about what's going to happen with COVID and vaccines and everything, rather than the <laughs> doom mongering. Which means I actually believe the optimistic stuff. I think I'm wired that way. But uh, yeah, I, there's obviously all the, again, the right spiritual answers, but I, I do practically find that literally the news I consume is generally positive leaning because of the way I've curated it. Well, you have to go looking for positive news. The negative news will find you. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate that. And as somebody who works in that business, I'm the same way. Uh, then again, negative news finds me. I got to go looking for the positive stuff. My guest on Gospel Bound has been Andrew Wilson. Check out his book, God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World from Zondervan. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospelbound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Music